You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. I'm Helen Farmer. This is Farmer's Kitchen brought to you by Spinneys. Your chance to catch up on all things foodie. Friday does mean food and we were kicking off with an incredible chef, advocate and artist. Claudio Cordoso was with us, hailing from Portugal. What's on the menu from right here in the UAE? A chef from Texas has opened up an authentic Mexican restaurant. Lila Tequeria is uh, brand new on Beach Road. It's already packed. So what makes it so authentic? She joined us to share a little bit around the technology and the taste. Liam Collins giving us the latest food news, his take on that MENA top 50 breakdown. And are we drinking too much coffee? We were asking the experts. Plus, finding out from Spinney's how they use social media. This is Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinney's. Eat well, live well. We're all about giving you ideas for where to go and crucially what to eat. And I think most of us have got those foodie friends who are like, oh, have you been, have you been there? Oh, and that, there are people that you trust. And our foodie friends are called Ed and Gabby. And we uh, saw them a few weeks ago and like, well, have, have you been to Lila yet? And I was like, mm, well, I don't know what you're talking about. So, of course, we had to investigate. If you are craving an authentic taste of Mexico, we have got a recommendation for you. With me is the woman behind it, Chef Shaw. She's joining us to talking about what's happening there on Beach Road. She's worked alongside celebrity chef, restaurateur, Rick uh, Bayless. Uh, she's also been with British food writer Daniel Kennedy, who is considered to be the primary English language authority on Mexican cuisine. So, welcome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming to my office since I was in your office last time. Tell us a little bit about your your baby on Beach Road. Yes, absolutely. So uh, Lila Wood Fire Taqueria, we opened just about five weeks ago now. And um, we are a taqueria. We serve tacos, Mexican street food, snacks, churros, which are gaining quite a following at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we cook everything primarily over oak, over hardwood. Uh, gives the food just another flavor and another f- profile. And we are really loyal and very committed to the authentic flavors of Mexico, the authentic techniques of Mexico. We're going to be unpacking what that means. I want to mm-hmm. kind of give you my first impressions of when I came in a few weeks ago. So it's on it's on Beach Road, mm-hmm. which is my hood. So I'm obviously delighted. Um, it's a small, it's a petite space. Mm-hmm. I went in and was like, okay, we'll go, go upstairs. It was packed. Mm-hmm. It was a Tuesday night at about 7.15 and it was absolutely ramoed. And I just felt like that was such an exciting, wonderful thing, to be honest. And I can't even imagine what that must feel like mm-hmm. for you and your husband who've been working on this kind of so, so hard. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it's like you're coming to our home right now because we are, this, we gave birth to a baby basically. And um, and I come from a tradition of chefs and restaurateurs who are always in their restaurants. Um, there's just something different about the experience when you hear it from me and you hear it from my husband. Um, and there's something about taking care of you. As you know, you experienced, even before I knew who you were at the table, I sort of genuinely come up and talk to you and tell you about what we're doing and explain our story and everything um, because it is such a huge part of what we're doing is, um, is is telling, is helping you understand because maybe you don't understand. There's a lot of people that we totally understand might not know what grinding masa is about or might not know what tomatillos are or might not know... Um, beyond, you know, what's trending, what Mm -hmm. the food is about. Mm -hmm. So for us, like, we're very, very, very committed to being there every day. Um, As long, you know, for forever, really. (laughs) Let's let's hear a little bit about you then. Where did you grow up? What's that kind of culinary heritage? Totally. Um, So I'm originally from Texas. I'm originally from Austin. Um, And, you know, anybody who has spent time in Texas or or Austin specifically uh, knows that there's tremendous influence of Mexico in that area, in that state. Um, And so I grew up in in a family that was always really sort of just enamored with Mexico. And we spent a lot of time there as a child, as children. Um, and so I always was a big fan of the food and I, I started studying it quite early on and I got very lucky and I moved to Mexico in my 20s um, and started being more serious with, with studying the food and understanding the chilies and understanding the, the techniques. That's when I picked up my nickname, Lila, which is... Yeah, tell me about Yeah, this. totally. So, so my true name is, is, as you mentioned when we opened, is Shaw. Um, but native Spanish speakers are not usually... It doesn't easily roll off the tongue, the SH, because the SH comes out as chow or che. 
and I was very sensitive. Um, it's, it's a family name. And so I was, you know, thinking about a nickname and I just love the name Lila. And so many, many years ago now, that sort of became my, um, my, uh, my avatar in, in like Mexico <laughs> like is Lila. Like your, your kitchen stage it's, name. Exactly. It's my kitchen. It's, and specifically, <laughs> and then my whole career, I've been in Mexican kitchens, which is Spanish speakers. So everybody, all my friends in Mexico, my entire community in Mexico, they all call me Lila. Um, and so it was a very natural sort of expression of my story in Mexico is to call the restaurant Lila. So um, in my 20s, um, I got very, very, very lucky. And uh, when I was working in Mexico, met Chef Rick Bayless, who's sort of been the most important uh, mentor and boss for me. Mm -hmm. um, I met him in Mexico and I very quickly went to him and I said, I really love what you're doing in Chicago. I want to come work for you. And he said, how quickly can you get here? And so I left Mexico and I moved to Chicago and I worked for Rick for like six years, six or seven years. And we opened, I opened a restaurant for him, a, a street food restaurant in Chicago that's still cranking and open to this day. Um, and then I worked in various capacities for him in research and development, writing books, working on his television show. And in that time period, I was also quite close with this woman, Diana Kennedy, who's sort of the living authority on Mexican food in the English language. The person who's, she was edited by the same person who worked with Julia Child. So wow. it's that same sort of generation of women that were speaking about the food in a very interesting way. And so I was very close with Diana and I helped her open her culinary center in Mexico um, a number of years ago. And so I worked, that was sort of my pedigree, my background. And, and then I, over the years, have consulted on other Mexican restaurant projects in New York and in Chicago. But were you the whole time thinking, but if it so was exactly, mine, but exactly, if it was mine. Exactly, exactly. And so I needed to take a little break before I was an owner. Um, and so I, I got into advertising and that brought me here in 2016. Was when, that career? When you identified a gap, which is what we're going to talk about next. Exactly. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. The woman behind Alila's on Amsakim in Beach Road is here. I have to say, it's been... Um, it's been really interesting to watch the last few weeks of things just unfolding. I was just chatting to your fair chef about what that demographic, you know, who's who's coming. And it was foodies. You've really tapped into something there. So when you moved to Dubai back in 2016, what, what were you looking to, I guess, kind of, were you looking for good Mexican food at that point and weren't finding it? Or what was going on? It wasn't necessarily even that. It was more that this is a thrilling F&B scene, mm -hmm. I think. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, the numbers that they run as far as like how many concepts are here and how many different demographics are here and how open people are, I don't want to say to spend money, but like... No, but it's a big eating out culture. It's a big, exactly. And so the numbers back up a business decision to choose to do something here. Mm -hmm. and, and I personally was looking for a community that would be excited and I was looking for a place that I thought people are, they love spice here. They love acid here. You know, there's this obvious, tremendous uh, South Asian culinary scene underneath this. That's the oldest and, and so rich. And, and people are open. Like I, we get asked, we have this secret sauce on the line. I'll tell everybody I have to ask for the secret sauce. And it's our very spicy, creamy green salsa. And we give it away or sell it more than anything else in our restaurant because people ask for spice and that's exciting for someone who's like a chef mm -hmm. because and also like we never ever ever almost never get asked for salsa on the side which is thrilling like so, those things are exciting so you feel like you're connecting with people that are yes foodies but but also people who perhaps might not have eaten Mexican food in that way before. A hundred percent. It's an education piece as well. A hundred percent. A big functionality of what I do in the restaurant is that I sort of run the room. I have a wonderful, wonderful kitchen team that uh, the, the cooks and the head chef that work uh, in the kitchen right now. And so I'm luckily able to to run the room. Um, and a lot of that is explaining the masa, explaining the corn, what you had talked I, about. I, yeah. okay. Segway. No, I want to know about this because <laughs> the other thing that caught my eyes when, when I came in a few weeks ago, um, you you work with raw, so you've got your coffee bar downstairs, but you also had what looked like a shawarma. And I was like, what? Right. Um, so let's talk food. Yeah, what, totally. What, because authenticity is absolute cornerstone of everything you're doing there at Lila. So tell us a little bit about, well, let's start with technique. Because when we met initially, I hadn't quite realized the significance of some of the equipment you've got in the kitchen. So can you share a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the base point of all discussion around Mexican food starts with uh, the corn. So it's the heart of the food um, and the sort of ancient culinary technique that 
evolved from the indigenous women of Mexico figuring out how to like loosen the uh, nutritional value of corn has distilled down into this modern technique where you cook the corn overnight and soften the hull and the, the germ. And that makes it palatable enough that you can grind it in a stone mill and make a wet dough to make masa. Masa is the word in Spanish for dough. Um, and that dough goes to make your tortillas, your tostadas, your chips, your mamelas, your tatelas, your tamales, like whatever shape <laughs> it is. Um, but what, en- what ends up happening in the sort of modern... Uh, shortcuts is they've developed flowers that people use that that is a quick way to make that work i respect that that's okay but that's not what's exciting about what we are doing and so in addition to that we have that technique that we are doing which is the cooking of the corn overnight to be able to grind it on our stone mill in the morning and in addition to that we are able to bring in really incredible heirloom single variety land race corn from mexico so we have like blue corn we have yellow corn we have white corn um And it's all supporting the farmers in Mexico, which is really incredible. Mm. A question here from Raj, who's planning to make a Mexican vegan dinner. Mm. So what? how do you, and, and we're going to talk meat in a minute, but that's obviously a big thing right now for a lot of yeah. diners, whether it's being flexitarian or purely plant-based. Mm-hmm. How do you cater for that? Or is that already existing in authentic oh, it's Mexican totally, cuisine? Totally. Mexican food is actually really interesting for uh, dietary restrictions because, first of all, the technique I just described to you, the corn masa, is naturally gluten-free. All it is is corn and salt and water. So by nature, there's nothing that is very, very gentle on the tummy. The tummy. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, uh, beans are a wonderful part of the cuisine, black beans, brown beans, etc. And so those give you like nice proteins. We love avocado in Mexican food. And so like you end up with something that's quite nourishing. The taco itself doesn't need meat or cheese. You can vary. We have a wonderful smoky grilled cabbage taco that we serve with an oily chili sauce. It comes with a yogurt, but for vegans, we just replace it with avocado and they love it. So like for us, it's very easy and natural. I do want to talk about meat, though. Because yeah. that, <laughs> we all love meat. Because, Not all of us, well, a few, but A few I things do. that kind of really caught my attention. I loved the chipotle honey shrimp, mm-hmm. um, but the lamb, the lamb tacos al pastor. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, quite interestingly, this is actually a really fun bridge. Uh, Levant immigrants, I would say Lebanese, but you have to track the exact history to, to call me accurate, took the spit, the shawarma spit, to Mexico a number of years ago. Let's just say a couple of hundred years ago, maybe 150 years ago. And the Mexicans adapted it into their most beloved taco, the al pastor. Uh, the pineapple on the top, the red chili marinade, you shave it off the spit and you serve it with usually a creamy green raw salsa, onions and cilantro and lime. Um, and so when we wanted to open here, it was actually something that my husband pushed heavily for when he traveled with me in Mexico and saw the shawarma spit. He's from Syria. And so he was like, what is this? And I explained to him <laughs> like what together. the history was. Yeah, what the history was. He was like, we have to have this in the restaurant. And so the adaptation that I think is way more interesting uh, is doing it with lamb. So we tenderize it overnight. So it really pulls out a bit more of that strong lamb flavor. And it ends up going in this very light, delicate direction for lamb, mm-hmm. but is the exact same setup as the pastoral. Mexico. Lastly, because we are running out of time, what have been some of the big hits on the menu with yeah, diners? Yeah, totally. The Lamb Al Pastor is definitely our biggest seller. Um, we also are getting a lot of traction with our steak taco, which is, which is with melted Mexican cheeses we call the Costra style. And then our large entrees are very, very, very delicious. Um, at Lilo, we are sort of getting a following for the big steak, the carne asada, and also our whole grilled fish, the red snapper, sourced from Fujera. Um, and so at, at Lila, those have become really popular. And lastly, how many covers have you got and how can people come and see you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, we encourage uh, reservations in advance. Um, you can re- reach us through our Instagram, um, which is quite easy, or you can always just call the number on, on the Google Maps listing or the email as well on our website. If you want the details of Lila's, just send me a message saying Mexico and I will send you their Instagram. I make no responsibility for you immediately making a booking because I tell you what, the photos are gorgeous and the food is even better. Huge congratulations to you and the team. Thank you, Helen. Honestly, it's really wonderful to think about, not to say a homegrown, but in, you know, international experience, but putting down roots here in Dubai for, for, our, for our benefit. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Get back in the kitchen. Chef Shaw joining us this afternoon. If you do want details of what I think is one of the most exciting restaurants in Dubai right now, send me the word Mexico to 4001 and I will send you the details straight over. This is Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinney's. Eat well, live well. Latest food news now. Where to go? Where deserves your hard-earned dirhams? 
Well, our man on the ground, Liam from EcoSea, is with us to reflect on the last week and also have a little look ahead to where we should be going. Let's start off with that MENA World's 50 Best. That was announced on, I think it was mon- Tuesday night? Monday. Monday, Monday. night. I was Abby. Going out on a Monday night. Yes. <laughs> How was it? it? I tell you what, it, what I really love about these uh, events, and, and shout out to the team particularly Claudia, who, who put it together, is that there's such a wonderful collegiality and camaraderie that happens that you, you really feel the ego is kind of left at the door mm-hmm. and people are just very, very happy to see each other. Um, so that I always find very kind of energising and, and very, very positive, to be honest. And I think that chef community has actually taken quite a while to come together in yep. Dubai because when we look at other big foodie cities in the world, and I'm going to use London as a really lazy example, um, you know, you've got this kind of geography that lends itself you know when my brother-in-law was you know he was at St John for a long time you know mm. they go you, you need his best mate was at Corvallis like they'd all just go out together yep. afterwards and yes. that was like a big social thing whereas in Dubai there, just, there isn't this natural kind of area where you know lots of restaurants might be so I think that communication has got to be quite a concerted thing and it's taken a while for that community to really come together and I do think you're right events and awards such as this play a really big role in that and I, I would speculate that I think for a lot of us you know there was the time of COVID etc where we didn't see each other and things like that and, and I think having come out of that at least for me and I know a lot of other people that's kind of reset the way that we look at things and mm-hmm. so the ability to see each other you've got colleagues who are flying in from Egypt or Saudi or Bahrain or any of these other places and now we're all together under one roof just kind of celebrating the that we love so much so it's positive and it was a really interesting list as well yes a really interesting so this is for the MENA region and well UAE did very well indeed exceptionally well so I think um Shout out to Food Shake who did superb analysis as usual. If He's you're good not, for his data, isn't he? Yeah, if you don't follow him on Instagram, you're not using Instagram properly. Um, so he, he did a really great job in terms of the breakdown. But I think for us here in the UAE, I mean, one out of three people on the list are in the UAE and most of those are in Dubai. And when you look at the top five, four out of the top five are in the UAE as well. And they're all in... They're all in Dubai. So let's, Dubai was very well let's represented. Let's do a countdown. For any, <laughs> so we did speak to the winner on the show on Tuesday. So I'm, I'm not going to do any spoilers because let's let's do that re- in reverse order. I'm not saying from 50. Sure. You went quite pale there. <laughs> just, <laughs> oh dear. Just the top five, sure. if you wouldn't mind. So so number five is Three Fills. Three Fills was the number one winner last year. I would say very much a, a local favourite among people. I know people who go to three villes, you know, sort of religiously. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think that popularity is reflected in the top five listing. In at number four. In at number four coming in hot was Oceano. So this was the highest entry. So for those who maybe aren't familiar with 50 Best and the way it works, you have the highest climber, who's the person who moved the highest from one year to the next, and you have the highest new entry. Uh, And so they came in at number four. And I think this reflects the excellent work that Chef Gregoire and the team have done, particularly with his return to Oceano. Real point of difference, I think, for a lot of restaurants here. He's such a cerebral chef and he's done some amazing collaborations over the last year. So what I like about that top five is we've got a range of budgets we've Correct. got a range of locations Correct. we've got a range of different culinary influences yes but that really is ticking that kind of high-end fine dining box with with a flourish really correct yes and and i think they have one of the best service teams in the uae and in the region mm-hmm. well smellier got the nod from michelin early this year correct. so Daniela, yeah. okay number three uh number three was fusions by tala in bahrain which uh, it needs to be celebrated for many reasons so that was the highest climber if i remember correctly um it's also the the highest rated restaurant in bahrain uh, it's also the highest rated female chef as well wow. um so tala is uh, excellent she is I would say someone who looks to the past but is unconstrained by it. And so she's challenging what local Bahraini dishes mean. And she's definitely presenting it with her new kind of modern contemporary eye. Uh, highly recommended. It's almost enough to make me want to go back to Bahrain. Definitely worth it. This alone. <laughs> and I, I lived there for a while and really struggled. Ah. But the food was phenomenal. Yes. Adelia, that area was just, oh, I had an absolute blast. I think it's a really exciting place food-wise. Yes. I just couldn't live there when I was 24. <laughs> In at number two... <laughs> Uh, in a number two, so this, this I would say number two and number one were, for a lot of people, I think probably to be expected in that sense. And that's because they're both uh, in the world, uh, say, 50 to 100 list. So implicitly, you would think they would be, if not at the top, very near the top. And so number two is Trezen Studio. Um, I think a, a lot of people were understandably very excited for Himanshu uh, and the team. I think a lot of people, when they think about the best restaurant in Dubai, that sort of spills out of their mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been doing, I would say, cutting-edge modern Indian cuisine uh, for the last, I think, five years or six years, quite a long time. Um, 
And I think their position is very much a reflection of the hard graft and, and effort and, and innovation they've been putting in over the years. And the imagination, I think, for a yep. lot of people, because a lot of people are very loyal diners at Trinston Studio. But Correct. but the fact that they shake it up so often, it, yes. it keeps people engaged and excited every single time they go. And he's also, I mean, I don't want to say a child. He's a very young chef. Yes, he is. In, and does absolutely delivering. So in at number one, I'll let you take the honours. So in at number one was, was Orfali, uh, Orfali Brothers. And and I have to say the the room when when the announcement was made was just sort of erupted with with sheer joy um, and when you look at the the last two number ones of the last of the only two years we've had so far for Mina 50 best they've both been unlicensed I would say affordable versus the fine dining type restaurants. Uh, and there might be an insight or a trick into that. So the way the 50 best works is that there's a, a clutch of confidential voters who, who vote on who they believe the, the number one restaurant is. Um, and for fine dining, you know, people probably go infrequently, but have a very memorable, very special occasion visit. But it's interesting that the two number one spots have been places that pr- people probably go to more often in a year. Mm-hmm, absolutely right. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with Afali, tell us a little bit about why you think it deserves that top spot. So I, I, I think what I really appreciate about Orfale is that they are trying to take Middle Eastern food uh, and the tr- again, sort of contemporizing it, trying to make it modern. Um, and they're quite unconstrained, again, by the past. And there's, you very much get the personality of the chefs, these three brothers coming through in the menu. They have dishes like the Come to Aleppo, uh, where they have very clear dedications um, to, their, to their home country and, and to this region. And I think there's a tremendous amount of nostalgia for people mm-hmm. uh, here in Dubai who recognize that and want to celebrate um, a modern contemporary Middle East restaurant. I think a big reason for why there has been so much kind of joy and celebration in them taking the top spot is that sense of people people and humanity yeah. and connection. Yeah. And we're just chatting there with Chef Shaw, who's just launched uh, Lulu's. Um, we, we go for food, but we, we often stay for the stories. Yes, you know. And I, I, think, I think what Mohammed does so, so well um, is that sense of storytelling yeah. around the dishes and understanding why things are on the plate and we know what his perspective really um and I th- that's what i really enjoyed um when i went was i felt like i'd really learned something about yeah. him and his family but also what i was eating and that's kind of you that just kind of hooks into your memory really when it's so much more than just the taste i agree i, I think it's food with a lot of heart you, you can sort of feel it on the plate i think their stories are quite compelling if if you go to the restaurant he's a chef you will see him there him and his brothers are in the restaurant. They're not somewhere else, you know, just enjoying their success. And so you can talk to them. And if you do go, hear about his story. The story of setting up Orfali Brothers was complicated. It was, it was fraught with difficulty. And so I think, I think that really, you know, wins people's hearts over when they see him not just be successful day to day, but be successful on a global stage as well, too. I think another another big positive for this list is how much homegrown talent there is, you know. Correct. And there were some really big international names in that top fifteen. Don't get me wrong, I still love the idea of Dubai being recognised by international brands and chefs and yep. understanding that they you know there's a market for them here, but the way Dubai puts itself on the map is yes. through nurturing some of this talent. And that was when I spoke to Mohammed Ofali early in the week. That was the big takeaway I got from him. He's like, This is this is a big responsibility. Yeah. You know, this this platform, this stage is something we do not take lightly and we're going to be really using it to promote talent through and educate. And I thought, wow, that's that feels like a really worthy winner. Yeah, it's it's inspiring. Absolutely inspiring. Let's talk about where you've been recently. <laughs> no, I don't know how you... Honestly, I don't know how you do it. I have, I have one night out a week and it absolutely ends me. But you are, oh, as I said, man on the ground. Um, first pick that mm-hmm. you think is well worth investigating is an Italian. Tell us about Mono. So I guess on the theme of, let's say, local restaurants and, and, and small and things like that, there's this lovely little restaurant called Mono that's on Alwassel Road. It is a stone's throw away uh, from Orfali that we were just talking about. Um, and I wrote a piece about it on on my website uh, back in December. It was my last article I published for the year saying, Mono, why aren't we all eating here? Um, Because there's an Italian chef there called Federico Bartoli. Uh, My understanding is that it's owned by these two Emirati former pilots, uh, and they brought him in uh, in order to create this, I would say, Tuscan optics aesthetic type restaurant. But where people should spend their time on the menu, it's only a 30-item menu, 
most of the menu, 95% of it is less than 100 dirhams a plate. Uh, and the pasta in particular is all made in-house. Um, so there's some superb pasta dishes that they have there. In particular, uh, there's a ravioli dish um, with, I believe it's a parmesan fondue, truffle and a veal jus. It's 85 dirhams made by hand um, by, by the chef in the back at, at the restaurant. Um, I think that is a place that people should go to and, and they should check out. Um, yeah, well, well worth seeing. It's Mono with two N's. Correct. Mono Dubai, if you fancy having a little nosy on their Instagram, which I would say is a thing of beauty. You know, I'm a big believer that there's nothing better than great food photography. There's nothing worse oh, yeah. than really bad food photography. <laughs> and they've nailed it. So as you're saying, um, under 100 dirhams, vast majority of the items there. This is this sounds really, really interesting. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, I think we've probably got time for maybe one more sure. recommendation. Where else is on your hit list right now, Liam? So I think... Uh, a lot of people are talking about fusion ceviche, which is, uh, I think Peruvian is coming back. You know, Dubai loves a trend. We've been through burgers and Greek and, and all this <laughs> sort of stuff. And it, was, and it was Asian something for probably the last three years, right? But I, I'm seeing now the, the, you know, like a phoenix, f- Peruvian food is coming back now. Mm. Um, and there's this lovely lady, Penelope Diaz, the chef. Um, my, my understanding of her story was that she was serving almost like a supper club from her apartment, serving to people in her building. And she was so popular that she then opened up this restaurant in JLT um, and it's it's just the food's very good you know the, the ceviches are bright acid forward and the, the fish is fresh uh, you should also have the grilled octopus if you're there as well too pricing wise it's, it's very very reasonable uh, and the service is very warm small restaurant maybe only 20 covers wow yeah. I'm, I'm 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 there for it to be honest I like a I like a cozy place I'm you know I'm not going to name any names but sometimes you go to a restaurant and you're like oh my goodness there's a lot of people in here yes. but I feel like I'm in an airplane hangar yes and I go for food but I also go to kind of earwig on what people are you know but yeah. people watching around me that sense of atmosphere and escapism for a lot of it so I love yeah. I love the sound of that so that is Fusion's Ceviche in yes. JLT. JLT. Yes. Again, JLT, brilliant foodie hotspot. Yes. Um, where are you going this weekend? Uh, well, I'm going to try and go to a little taqueria that I've just been hearing oh, about. Funny uh, that. Could be yeah. lucky to get a table. <laughs> yeah. No, so that, that's somewhere that's, uh, that's very much on, on my radar. Um, I'm also going to be going to Mahala uh, tomorrow because they've got a new menu. Um, and I, I like the chef. I, I've known him for a while. So I just want to go and check it out and see what he's doing. For anyone that wants to check you out and see what you're doing, what's the best way of getting in touch and giving you a follow? So you can get me on pretty much all social media as it's Liam Collins it's Collins with an E so C-O-L-L-E-N-S um, and you can check out my website eatgoc.com uh, and I also write for Fact Magazine thank you so so much uh, you, you make me feel like I don't need to go everywhere because you're out <laughs> kind of condensing it for me but I love the sound of mono that sounds like yep. so we just said off air, I think some of the most exciting restaurants right now are those unlicensed homegrown Correct. gems. And I think it's uh, I think it's more than a movement. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful kind of addition to the city. So that's on my list for the weekend. Cool. I'll send you the bill. All right. Thank you so much. If you want Thank you. details, drop me a little message. The Chef's Table. We love introducing you to the producers, the tastemakers, and of course the chefs. And joining us now in studio is Chef Claudio Codoso from Cana in the SLS Hotel. Not only is he a chef, he's an artist, environmental activist, and an author as well. So thank you for making your time this afternoon. I yeah. really appreciate it. <laughs> it's, How a, are... it's a day that I'm running quite a bit. I, I think can, I can like imagine. every other day, but yeah. Well, uh, before we talk you, I want to know what would a chef buy in Spinney's? What would you be spending that money on? Uh, I have the spinach just around the corner. Probably the, the usual is uh, I go and grab some avocados. Pretty good. Uh, and also the keto ice cream uh, red velvet. So uh, when I have to do a quick run, usually that's what it's for. Uh, keto yeah. red velvet. Okay. <laughs> Considering inspired. So tell us a little bit about you. Where where are you from? And uh, when, I guess what were you eating if we're talking food this afternoon? Yeah. So um, grew up, well, was born in, in South Africa, but really grew up in Portugal. A family of chefs and from the industry. Uh, from bakers to producers of cereals, wine, honey. So a lot of time spent in the farm. Uh, as a kid, I just remember really being around food all the time. <laughs> but um, that must have been normal for you. And absolutely. I mean, I think in our culture, Portuguese, Spanish, and very much the Mediterranean, we spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the grandma is cooking, everyone's around the pots, uh, and everything happens in the kitchen. So when people ask me about child, like childhood memories, those are my memories, is being curious about what's being, even before, uh, because I became a chef quite young, but even before that, trying to sneak into the pots and seeing what's going on, it is one of my uh, longest memories. What are the dishes or even the smells that take you back to your childhood in particular? Bread is definitely one of them. Um, uh, 
background of one of my grandmothers was bakery. So I, I used to, before, after school, like primary school, uh, go back to the bakery. So definitely that. Um, the charcuterie, the smoking of charcuterie, more on my family of the north is also because they were also farmers and, and had their own cattle. So they used to do a lot of charcuterie. So those are really like the smell of the farm really uh, brings back the memories. I spent quite a lot of time in Portugal last summer and I, I'm sure any other Brits out there will probably be in a similar situation to me in that I grew up going to Portugal, but just the Algarve or as kind of, you know, like Yorkshire on sea as my Portuguese (laughs) friends call it. But last summer we did have the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in Lisbon. We went up to Sintra, we went to Nazaré, we went into the kind of central area as well. And I guess, and again, I apologise for sounding so naive, I hadn't quite appreciated just that kind of geographical complexities Mm -hmm. of, you know, different ingredients and influences. Um, I mean, how, how do you characterise Portuguese food? I think you, you mentioned the right thing. Portugal is tiny compared to other countries. I mean, major countries that are known for food, but it's so diverse. I mean, from north to south, uh, center and the interior and the coast, we have the best of the best. I mean, when we compare cheese, we always uh, talk about Italian and French, but Portugal could easily compete in all different varieties from cow to to, to goat uh, cheese. But again, charcuterie, the best seafood, meat, uh, but Mainly when we talk about organic, and we were discussing this today, like we talk about organic, but in Portugal, everyone's doing it organic. It's just like you, you know, and and that's what makes it better. Um, the the fruit, the size that it grows, is not because it has anything added. It's just good weather and and uh, good soil, and and uh, I think heritage. So that's the key. You then grew up with what sounds like an incredible understanding and respect for produce, and Absolutely. you've now gone on to travel the world. I mean, the list is just incredible: Peru, Italy, South Africa, where you were born, UK, Spain, Hong Kong, now in the UAE. Um, do you feel like there's an ultimate foodie city or country that you feel like if you want to work in food, you need to go there and experience it? For sure. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, living in the UK, uh, in the US, uh, New York, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, all those countries are uh, a mecca uh, of food in their own uh, way. And um, I mean, all of them have something that is important for me, which they are cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. So you can transpire that food somewhere else because you will find someone from that culture or someone that appreciates the food of that culture. Uh, but yeah, definitely, I think it's a mix. And, and the UAE is going and growing towards that. I mean, the, the conversations that you've been having um, this week and, and throughout the day is about that. We are we are catching up on, on the biggest cities. And uh, I think we are getting very close to be on that top uh, five or ten of, of the cultures and, and cities that food is very well respected. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the importance of produce here, especially because I know this is really close to your heart at Kana. Tell us a little bit about how you're celebrating UAE grown. For sure. Uh, everywhere I go, uh, <laughs> because growing close to farms, it's at uh, ends reach, good produce. And then when you go to the US or to the UK, uh, or London in big cities, it's not at hand's reach. So you want to work with those people that are doing it right. It's all about working with people that do it well and right and, and uh, have the right ethos. Um, and when I arrived in Dubai, my question with some of my close friends in the industry, I was like, I want to know who's doing it organically and well. And, and they said, forget it. It's impossible. Impossible is not a word that I really appreciate and I don't like. So I was like, no. Nah. There has to be somewhere. And I started digging and I found really that there's amazing produce uh, being grown and and in a way that is a bit more correct. And although there's a lot of desert, there's a lot of special things going on uh, out there. Amazing honey, some of the best that is growing throughout the region. Um, Amazing quality of seafood and and ways that are a bit more also respectful to the environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oysters. Uh, down in Diba Bay. So there's there's a variety of things that when we support, we do a different growth to, see, I always say this, it helps not only the community, it helps the smaller producers, but there's an influence that happens in the biodiversity of the region. And if everyone kind of chips in uh, and you look into the proximity of what you have in your region or regions uh, close to you, it also has a massive impact in the environment. And I think that is key when you're looking into produce. I think what I really like about what you've just said about it being... Yes, we've got a lot of desert, but you've obviously got a lot of desire to seek that out. And I'm always kind of interested about when you come to put a menu together, you know, how much is that from customer and diner demand asking Mm -hmm. for things? And how much is it coming from a chef who's saying, let me introduce you to things? Did you know that we can get mushrooms, cress, lettuce, tomatoes, you know, here in the UAE? And this is what they taste like. Mm -hmm. And I think it does take a certain chef to go above and beyond and I guess make life a little bit hard for yourself in some ways. 
Uh, absolutely. Um, the way I see it a bit, and um, and it's important for me, is that, and I always say that chefs, they nowadays have a platform, like I can have this platform now to talk a bit about my vision. Chefs can curate what can happen in everyone's table mm -hmm. in the future, right? Uh, if we uh, are passionate and we have an understanding and a deep understanding of produce, you can literally sell the dream in the correct way. So doing a menu, obviously, I listen to what people's needs are, but I try to understand how can I impact in a positive way. It takes research, takes going into depth into what's being done correctly in whatever region we go, but it creates a mark where it influences other people to actually follow the same uh, route. And and again, there is an amazing quality, as you said, of mushrooms and stuff like that, that are, can be introduced in your menus and they talk to everyone. There, you start with the products that talk to everyone and then you start introducing others that are less uh, maybe interesting, but uh, produced in a, in a special way. The Chef's Table. We are talking sustainability, artistry and, of course, food today. Joining us live in the studio from Kana is Chef Claudio Cardosa. And we're just talking there about celebrating local ingredients. But I feel like you as an environmental activist are taking this beyond the menu at Kana. Tell us a little bit about Cool Earth. This is an organisation that you were involved in back in the UK. What's it all about, Chef? So Cool Earth is about giving uh, the people, because at the end of the day, it's not us from here that we can protect the rainforest, but the people there, the Ashaninka, the tribes that can look after the, the rainforest. So it's an organization that goes fully uh, towards the, the tribes. The tribes have uh, in, in the deep, we're talking about remote. So Amazon is, uh, you have the outskirts where you can travel to by car, by Jeep. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Amazon that you travel by boat and the Amazon that you only can walk to, right? So Where did you go, I chef? went to that. You went deep. Walk to, uh, <laughs> yeah. So where you only walk, there's nothing. I mean, literally there's no electricity, no signal on your phone. It is very remote. I mean, we're talking about remote proper remote and uh, so what they do is is um, give the tribes the opportunity to use the money in their own way uh, they have a, a way of doing things where you have someone that is in charge of the tribe for two years so it changes you can be 18 years old you can be eight years old you can be female you can be as long as you after uh, your 18 year old and it changes consistently so there's no kind of a circle so mm -hmm. uh, they usually invest in medicine and education which is great uh, and what they do is uh, avoiding the loggers to come in and kind of go in for after big and expensive trees that have grown for years and years and years. Um, and the community there, because they're autosufficient because of the, the support, then they can uh, really avoid the loggers to come and buy the trees from them and they protect the rainforest. Cool Earth does that. Uh, so I was based in the one in Peru. Uh, so remote uh, Amazon in Peru, but they look after different rainforests around the world, the mm -hmm. Congo, Papua New Guinea. So they are all around the globe. How did it impact your philosophy around food? Uh, I was always very much about produce. And I think when I went there, I always tell the story. One of the things that hurt me the most was seeing uh, pieces of plastic bags alongside the river canes. And there's nothing else than uh, that man-made there. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, was the thing that made me realize how much we do so far away that kind of ends up there and how much damage it, it makes. I mean, uh, the biodiversity, the amount of things that I've seen, um, I mean, it's unique. Uh, biodiversity, size of certain insects and uh, the danger, and it's quite uh, adrenaline trip because... <laughs> I had to sign a waiver and I never read it until I got there and I realized that there's a lot of dangers and you sign for your life because you can literally die there. So um, it is intense. I would do it uh, all over every time that I'm invited to go and, and uh, work with the indigenous. Uh, but it, it is life changing and you appreciate more the gift of our planet, which is the nature. Well, thank you for bringing that knowledge here and in some ways passing on your passions for sustainability on the menu at Kana. Can you talk us through some of the, I guess, some of the dishes that are big hits with diners there? Because you really tapped into something with that foodie community. And I think the whole hotel actually is is doing an incredible job on the food front. Absolutely. So um, my favourites are um, the artichoke tart uh, and the croquette, uh, which is a, a bolito croquette. And what they have in common and a lot of other things, like, for example, the baked burrata is 
we try to find, uh, there's three pillars that we, we think about at the restaurant. The first one is nose to tail. Nose to tail can be on anything. You have a nose to tail <laughs> on a carrot, you have a nose to tail on a piece of paper. It's just how you see it. So we try to utilize the full scope of, of each element we use. And then um, one of the, the main ones that we focus the most is zero waste. So try to minimize waste as much as you can. And all the dishes I mentioned are based on zero waste. Artichoke tart is trying to use parts of the artichoke that no one would ever use. And then finally is the local produce. So all of them have the three uh, steps in, in common. So nose to tail, zero waste, and uh, the local produce, which we are proud to support quite a lot. Can I ask you a bit of a rude question? Yep. What impact does that have on your bottom line when you're thinking about planning, sourcing, spending? Sure. There's more resources that go into it, right? Uh, there's the thought process, there's the research. So there's when people think, oh, they they focusing on zero waste, that probably has an impact in terms of profitability. But when you sourcing correct and when you sourcing people that do it well, it tends to be more expensive. They're not cutting steps to make things grow quicker. Mm-hmm. They are not uh, putting uh, certain ingredients into the growth of your produce to make it faster. So that has actually an impact that it ends up being more expensive. So when you're buying local, yes, you're having an impact towards uh, the planet, but it's not necessarily cheaper if you buy from Holland from big farms that are doing it in greenhouses and very quick. Mm-hmm. So um, there's there's a medium between it, but it's d- about doing the right thing. And I believe about uh, my, my main focus is always do the right thing and that has a positive impact. And educate as well. Um, Correct. And you're a dad. Tell us a little bit about the book that you've got in the works. For sure. So before the book, I mean, being a dad, uh, it's amazing. Um, but as a chef, you you deal with so many young chefs. So you, they're also kind of, in a way, my kids, my responsibility to educate them. I see my, my daughter now more than, than all the other kids. Um, but the book, and it started with the idea between myself and my wife, where we we writing a story. There's two uh, fun characters. So uh, Whitey, which is a polar bear, and Foxy Fox, <laughs> which is a fox. And it's about Whitey going around the world, um, talking about the issues that he has and he's losing his home. So it's about going and is him talking to other animals, but it ultimately is us spreading the word of what's going on. And, and that's the, the message has to start with the young ones and, and with the parents, because we are ultimately the ones that are leaving that seed for the future mm-hmm. of our children and our children's children. That's right. Lastly, I mentioned at the top, you are a chef, environmental activist and an artist as yeah. well. Tell us about art and your personal life and also how that translates to the plate because we live in an Instagram age and everyone's taking photos of their food. For sure. Uh, my artwork and I work together with my my wife uh, so we do it in, in combination. So One Dollar Productions is based and the story behind it is changing the world one dollar at a time. So all the pieces always revert to different organizations, being it, again, environmental causes or um, any other cause that we find that it's important. But all the pieces are very artistic. They always talk about a beautiful story that is about the themes we're talking now. And ultimately, we try to utilize things that are good for the environment, but it's a lot about recycling pieces of things that usually end up in the bin. So mm-hmm. it, it is a, um, a quite lengthy process to finalize certain pieces because you're looking at either uh, frames that would be discarded. So uh, pieces of, uh, again, magazines, collage, a lot of, of that work. So it's something that then end up translating also into the plate. I, I've always been very creative and artistic, but playing with colors, dimensions, textures and all that, then have obviously a direct influence in the style of food that it's I do. a different do. medium. Yeah. Chef, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, hearing about your passions, I don't know how you have the time to be sparing half an hour to come and sit with us, especially when you're heading over now to Taste of Dubai. Have a wonderful weekend ahead. Um, for anyone that wants to find out more, uh, you are on Instagram. Very happy to share that. If you just want to send me a message with Chef on it and we can send you Kana as well. Chef Claudio, have a wonderful weekend ahead. Likewise. Just head down the road to Media City Amphitheatre and uh, go feed some hordes because Taste Dubai is now open. Chef Claudio speaking to us from Kana at Atalas. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. We are talking health this afternoon and asking, are you drinking too much coffee or... 
could it be good for us in the right way? Studies have shown that for those with high blood pressure, two cups of coffee might be too much. Joining us to give some insights from two very different perspectives, we've got Hanad Abuhada, who is the founder of Spill the Bean Cafe and a barista as well, and Dr. Khaldun Al-Shaheen, consultant internal medicine, gastroenterologist at Health Hub Arabian Centre. Now, I would like to know from you, how much coffee do you drink? Um, and are you worried about it? 4001. Um, I'd like to start with you, Hanand, if that's all right. How many cups of coffee do you have a day? Three by 11 a.m. Hi, hi, Helen. Hi. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I need to jump in to answer this question because, yeah, I love saying that I have three by 11 a.m., then one more during the day. So I always make sure not to exceed four. Interesting. Now, I, I'm, we're going to be hearing from the doctor soon. I've got no concept of this is good or bad. I mean, my, my instinct tells me that the quality of the coffee is going to be absolutely key. And, you know, having half a pint of instant is going to be very different to having high quality beans. Um, but I wondered when you, you've obviously got lots of regular customers that spill the bean. What <laughs> I'm sure there are some who probably far exceed that four cups a day. Is that right? Indeed. Indeed. They do. OK, so let's talk taste before we talk health. Um, now, you're, you're obviously drinking this because you love coffee and you're, you're in the business. But for us who haven't perhaps got such a sophisticated palate when it comes to coffee, how can we distinguish a good cup from a bad? For a regular uh, uh, consumer, it's just like music. I mean, you don't have to know how to read the music to appreciate it. So just it tastes good for you. You like it. You enjoy it. It does not have to be you don't have to be a curator and know uh, what's the yield of these beans or where the origin of these beans. Or, so it's, it's just that you like it. You like it. So, so you, you enjoy it. If you want to go into the science of coffee and coffee has changed from 20 and 30 years ago when it became really a science, not only an art, it mm-hmm. became an art with a science. So there is a science behind it. There are studies behind it. There are metrics to measure the quality of, of coffee. And as such, you have the Q grader that, that assesses if this is cup scoring above 80, then it's your, your into the realm of specialty coffee, which what Spill the Bean is, that you, you, you have the, the, the commodity coffee, which is the most of the chains that you see, they score between 60 and 80. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the specialty, which is 80 plus. And then you have into the 90 plus where it becomes incredibly expensive. It's not for, uh, it's, it's a minor lot that goes into a kind of uh, auctions which wow. you don't find in, in, in the market side. It's like really very niche thing. Super so I nerds. really can't say that what makes a coffee good for you. I, I from Personally, I say it's if it's not bitter, it's uh, it's mildly sour because sourness is, is much sought after. Uh, but that's about it. I mean, people, uh, when they have it with milk, it, it, uh, it adds a lot of flavors that change lots of the taste buds that you that you have. So uh, it's just how, how you enjoy it, exactly like music. You might be a fan of Beethoven or you might be a fan of uh, Beyonce. It's up to you. <laughs> I want Beastie Boys in my head there. Um, Hanan, tell us then, um, <laughs> where are you sourcing from at Spill the Bean? Where are you getting your coffee from? We, we're sourcing organic coffee and we're, we're getting it at the moment from uh, Kiss the Hippo in the UK. Uh, but we're also doing our own roast, roast and we're trying to, to stick to the organic uh, aspect of it. Now we're trying to, I mean, uh, uh, we were one of the first specialty coffee shops in Dubai. And now I'm, I'm glad to say that we are one of the first to introduce the shade growth coffee in, into Dubai and the bird friendly coffee to Dubai. It's uh, in the making. It's not yet on a large commercial scale, but we do it uh, on micro lots uh, in in the shop and we do it with our customers. Can I ask you about making coffee at home when we think about, well, everything from water, temperature, you know, grinding, brewing, roasting. For for your average coffee drinker, and I'm not talking like the niche mega, mega nerd, because that is, as you say, a different league, but your average person in the morning making coffee to set them up for the day. What are some of the essential bits of kit and techniques that, you know, we could all learn from this afternoon? If you're a fan of black coffee, it's incredibly easy to make great coffee. I mean, you you need like a a V60 brewer, which costs you 100 dirham. You need a a manual grinder by, I would say, Brand Hario, because this is one of the basic ones, and uh, it's like a, a brand name now. It will cost you 150 dirhams, and you need the good beans. That's about it. Of course, the water quality affects a lot. I mean, because water, uh, because coffee, after all, is 90 plus mm-hmm. uh, made of water. I mean, so uh, the quality at home, uh, the coffee, the water at home. Usually, if you have a filter or if you're using filtered water, it's more than good enough for your coffee. Uh, you don't have to play with the TDS 
that then you go into the the niche but to have a, a a good cup of coffee for a black coffee it's super easy at home your budget is not more than 350 dirhams of tools and you're ready to hit yeah. the road and make the best coffee ever you need to watch few youtubes <laughs> or come to me i'm always happy to uh, help people start their uh, their uh, journey to to becoming uh, a barista i i am an engineer and uh, i still work as an engineer but uh, coffee is like a hobby passion and side hustle and i enjoy it so i would, I, I i would say that yeah you can always find time to become uh, a home barista or uh, a barista well, thank you for sharing your enthusiasm. Um, for anyone that wants to come and try your coffee at Spill the Bean, where can we find you, sir? We are based in the Sustainable City and uh, shop number eight at the moment. And uh, we're always in doing pop-up events around town, but our base is in the Sustainable City, which has been our home for the past almost seven years. And I can say from personal experience, some great cake there as well. So thank you. All the best to you and the team. Thank, Hannah, you. thank you so, so thank much. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. From Spill the Bean there. We're going to be speaking to a doctor next. Um, so if you've got any questions or concerns about caffeine, get in touch. And here's, a, here's a Julie Mallon, sleep consultant. I thought she might have some views on caffeine. Coffee is this wonderful drink. And it, we know research tells us it's full of wonderful antioxidants. And even Matthew Walker, who came out very heavy against coffee and caffeine, has now re-evaluated because the research is there. So... Um, great in terms of antioxidant but we have to be very aware it does have a shelf life individual unique to you so it can stay in your body for three to seven hours i drink one to two cups of coffee always before two but equally caffeine blocks adenosine and in the morning you've got very little so don't don't waste it. Don't drink it in the morning. And I love my cup of Boone coffee. Ah, oh, Julie Mallon, sleep consultant. Um, yeah, I'm going to tell my husband that. He reckons that late night double espresso does not impact his sleep. I think it probably does more than he realises. This is Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. We are talking food, but also refreshing you two with some coffee chat. Joining us now from Health Hub Arabian Centre is consultant internal medicine and gastroenterologist, Dr. Khaldun Al-Shaheen. We're talking coffee, Dr. Khaldun. How are you? Yes, I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So go on, confession time. How much do you drink? Uh, I'll try to keep myself up to two or three cups a day, uh, sometimes a little bit more. Depending but, uh, on the need. The exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, this is the one form where I feel a little bit smug at the doctors where they say, you know, oh, how much caffeine do you drink? And I'm like, I don't drink tea or coffee and look and look really, really smug. And then I realise I do quite like a diet soda um, once a day, sometimes twice. So we are going to talk coffee, but I want to talk about caffeine in general. Um, can you explain what it is and what it does to our body in hopefully not too doctorly terms so we all understand? I'll try to make it simple, of course. Uh, of course, well, exactly. Of course, when you're talking about caffeine, uh, that is uh, uh, the general conception is uh, that the stimulant effect of caffeine it stimulates the body, it activates the body because it is scientifically proved, and those are the short-term action of caffeine. It enhances the mental function and activity uh, of the brain. It enhances the physical activity of the brain. And these these are studies. These are, uh, uh, what do you say, uh, neurochemical studies. Mm -hmm. These are brain images. Those are the things that we know. And those are the short-term effect of the caffeine. It makes you more alert. It makes you more concentrated, of course. Uh, It helps people with specific uh, jobs, drivers, pilots, and they can concentrate people who have sleep deprivation they will benefit from these short-term effect of caffeine athletes can uh, get more uh, physical performance out of caffeine so this is uh, generally the 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 benefits the short-term benefits of caffeine and everything we say about caffeine is really really dose dependent Mm. how much caffeine you get into your body this is really important uh, this it depends on the dose, and it's just like any other stimulant or, or drug. Too much is absolutely yeah, helpful. Let's let's talk too much because what are some of the symptoms you should look out for um, in terms mm-hmm. of those adverse effects from caffeine, Doctor Khaldun? 
Yeah, if we, this this is not a really easy question because there are a lot a lot of types of of caffeine containing beverages. If we're taking if we're talking about the most common ones, those are the coffee, the tea, the the, the soft drinks, and etc. But if, we, if we're taking coffee, for example, it's not a really it's not a really easy question because. Uh, the the different types of coffee. If we're talking the the old time brewed coffee, espresso, uh, all the other types, uh, uh, th- th- there are there are different concentrations of these. For example, the old time brewed coffee. Mm-hmm. There is something between 100 or 200 milligram caffeine in per serving, and the serving is I don't know something about eight to ten milliliter per serving. And uh, and, and and once you get that, then you're getting your let's say 100 milligram caffeine. And that concentration is really okay. It's rather low. The recommended safe consumption of caffeine is up to 400 milligram. So one brewed coffee means about, we'll say 100 milligram. So up to four, and you think on your on the safe side, and we're talking healthy adult individual. Mm-hmm. So oh, something a, that, between three or four coffees. Yeah, that's a good distinction because we've had a message here saying I absolutely love coffee. However, as someone who suffers, and I hope I say this right, hyperhidrosis, I have to avoid drinking coffee at all costs, especially in a social setting. I wish there was alternative. So when we think about people with conditions or a certain demographic, who should be avoiding caffeine, doctor? Exactly. Uh, uh, when, we say, when saying it like this, uh, I think, first of all, if, we, if we're talking first psychiatry, people who have tendency to anxiety, depression, and something like this, those people should avoid the caffeine because it can trigger the episodes there. This is the first thing that we know. The second, uh, caffeine, if you have a high blood pressure, for example, because we know that caffeine can raise your blood pressure. I, I, I think the concept is a bit exaggerated, but it's good to avoid. Uh, on the other hand, there are, uh, I can say, uh, uh, old understandings uh, that, that, uh, that is not recommended anymore. For example, people with heart conditions. Uh, the study said that uh, the discontinuation of caffeine in the heart patient is not recommended. Okay. Uh, we're, we're talking, once again, concentration and amounts. Mm-hmm. So people with depression, people with anxiety, higher blood pressure, they, they should keep away from the caffeine. The other condition, not really. It's a dose dependency thing. What about pregnancy? Because that seems to be a bit of a problem for a lot of people in those first Ex- first few exa- months of like, oh, Ex- I feel sick and I can't Ex- have the things I miss and torture. Ex- exactly. There are actually accurate number about that. Pregnancy, they are recommended to have half the amount of the non-pregnant people or women. So if we're saying 400 milligram and that is three to four cups of regular coffee, when it comes to pregnancy, up to two is really okay. No problem. A question here from Sammy saying, is caffeine addictive? That's a big question. What, what do you exactly. say? What's your exactly. take? Exactly. Exactly. That's a really interesting question. You know, caffeine addiction or, or caffeine dependence, it's a research diagnosis. It's not yet a real diagnosis because it, do, it does not fulfill all the criteria of addiction. So the straight uh, forward, simple answer is no. It's not an addiction, but the, the research is still there. So it is something that it's called research diagnosis. And um, uh, uh, there is something that it's called caffeine withdrawal symptoms, and those are real, mm-hmm. but not the caffeine dependence, not, not the addiction. Okay. Interesting. No. Okay. Um, and lastly, I guess I wanted to ask you about the quality of, of, uh, of caffeine. Does that make a difference in terms of some of the health benefits you were talking there, you know, about, you know, improving exercise performance, energy levels, um, even concentration? Uh-huh. Up, up, absolutely not. Absolutely. If you're talking about the caffeine itself, it exists in the coffee, in the tea, in the chocolate, in the soft drinks. Caffeine is caffeine. I don't think, uh, but on the other hand, there are other chemicals and these kind of different drinks and they can also give you some other effects on the body mm-hmm. but no 
caffeine is caffeine. It's a matter of chemical and concentration. Dr. Khaldun, thank you so much for your time today. I think a lot of people now craving a coffee and it's after four o'clock, so I'm not sure they should be having it, but really appreciate your time and your insights this My Friday pleasure. afternoon. Dr. Khaldun speaking to us from Health Hub Arabian Centre. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. We are talking food, of course. It is Farmer's Kitchen, brought to you by Spinneys. I'm Helen Farmer, and in conversation now with the digital editor of Spinneys, Davina Devecha is with us. And Davina, we're asking people this afternoon, in order to win that 500 dirham prize to spend in store, what would you spend that money on? So you are in Spinneys, obviously, all the time. And I wonder, yes. and you can't win, by the way, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that if, sad, but okay. <laughs> but if I was to give you 500 dirhams to spend in, in your, in, well, you're above the Maidan store, which is gorgeous. What would you be buying? Yeah. What would be going into the trolley? Um, I am actually in the mood for chocolate. Um, so I think a lot of sweet treats and coffees and teas. I'm feeling feeling a chocolate and, you know, tea and coffee vibe. Oh, love that. I was I was spied some Whitakers in store yesterday and I was like, oh. Yes. There's some re- really lovely packaging in store um, for our teas and coffees at the moment for some new products. So definitely check those out. Okay. Thank you. I like it. You, as I said, you can't win, but it's great to get you get your ideas <laughs> because what's interesting about your job as digital editor is you you are across all sorts of different you know, parts of content at the supermarket, you know, products coming in, recipe planning. Can you explain a little bit, I guess, about how a supermarket uses social media and why? Can you give us a bit of an overview? Yeah, I mean, uh, for us at Spinney's, you know, we've obviously want to connect with our customers and we want to engage with them a lot more. And because of that, um, we have changed and updated how we work on our communication channels, especially with social media. You know, a lot of retailers can potentially use it as, you know, a recipe-focused page or, you know, just pushing products. But I think what we have seen is we've become a lot more dynamic in the last few years um, and actually kind of doing things that our customers will love. So whether it's, you know, sharing advice, sharing tips, recipe hacks or just anything that we think that they will resonate with that's something that is important to us and you know for us at the end of the day all of this hits our brand pillars which is important Um, and at the end of the day the customer is happy which makes such a big difference. I think for me you know I I love your magazine but I'm more often on my phone than I am kind of flicking through it so I think it's such a valuable way of bringing attention to you know what's trending new announcements um, and I guess as you say you know, as a, as a bit of a bit of a resource for information and recipes. Um, yeah. Can I ask you about how you use different platforms? I mean, Instagram comes to mind immediately because that's the platform that I use the most. But how do you treat the different yeah. different platforms differently? Um, so I think it depends on obviously where we are. But um, for Instagram, you know, it's like informative videos, tips and tricks, um, and video first. You know, as everyone is doing at the moment. Um, but also, uh, TikTok has been an amazing place for us to you know play because it's just over a year old now, and we've almost established this kind of identity or personality where there on that page it's all about being more light more fun mm-hmm. and kind of having fun with what we're pushing out um so that, i think that you kind of have to see what kind of audiences you have in in different places all the while still pushing content that enriches their lives um so yeah i think that's what we're doing does this mean that you're doing some dancing in the spinney's office from time to time <laughs> I I have not yet done any dancing in his TikTok page. <laughs> but I think that is a big misconception whereas actually TikTok for information and education is much more yeah. you know much more on the rise than we might realize. Um yeah. so in terms of that variety yeah maybe not dancing but but also being able to go out and do these incredible photo shoots you know so much goes on behind the scenes to you know result yeah. in a 30 second or, or 1 minute video. Do you have a typical day? Um, no, I mean, there, there's never a typical day, especially for social media. You know, one day Ankit just tells me, hey, can we go and find some honey bottles because we're working on a honey video, all right? And then the other day he's dressed up in a scream costume and shocking everyone in the office during Halloween. So it's, <laughs> it's not typical in any way, shape or form. That sounds fun, though. It does sound fun. But I think, as you say, not to kind of underestimate exactly what goes into those 
those videos, yeah. that content for, for us, for the, you know, for the consumer. Um, you've also started the Spinney's Brand Ambassador Program recently, which I am beyond honoured to be part of. Yes. For anyone that's not familiar with the concept, can you explain a little bit about what it's all about? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we're super happy to have you on board uh, on this program. So, you know, what we realized as part of our process of engaging with the customers is, you know, it's about real talk. It's about, you know, connecting with people who are already friends of the brand, you know, Spinney's customers who can share their stories, you know, tips, recipes, uh, kitchen secrets, um, and that's what the Spinney's Brand Ambassador Program is all about, where we work with, you know, a select number of creators like yourself um, every month to show to our customers, to show to a wider audience why they should pick, you know, Spinney's products for, you know, the quality that we offer or, you know, just get a great value meal deal for 35 dirhams, you uh, know, in that thank video. Thank you. That's what I was yeah. about to say. I think, I think, I mean, for me... Yeah, you know, Spinney's is a big part of my life, you know, personally and yeah. professionally, and I'm, I'm in store probably about four or, four, four or five times a week. Um, so when I was approached, I was really, really honoured because while I love food, I don't think of myself as being necessarily a kind of a chef or tastemaker. In fact, I'm yeah. pretty much the opposite. But I think that in itself is actually really valuable because most, most customers in Spinney's, while they will love their food, won't consider themselves to be a chef. You know, it's busy people yeah. mm-hmm. who've you know, looking to do that, that, you know, that midweek meal or that lunchbox, you know, success. Um, yeah. And so the first video I did, which is on my Instagram and of course Spinney's as well, is your 35 dirham stir fry meal deal, which is something I buy at least once a week. So I think, <laughs> I think it is really nice to hear, as you say, hear people's stories. You are working with some people who are really, really inspirational and accomplished um, as ambassadors as well. Tell us a little bit yeah. about who's in the team. So, uh, apart from yourself in the Brand Ambassador Program, um, we have Zahra, Zahra Abdullah, who is also one of our columnists for Spinney's, um, the magazine. Uh, and then we've got uh, Charlie, who, you know, works on a lot of kind of healthy products as well um, and healthy recipes. And then we also have Ashley, uh, Ashley and DXB, I think. So, yeah. Really, really fun. So, we are going to be bringing bringing some more ideas and uh, and inspiration and can i just ask then having a look through the spinney's account it's, it's really interesting to see what resonates and, and sometimes mm-hmm. i mean anyone who does content creation sometimes there's no way of predicting this you know you can mm. you can work and slave and edit and finesse you know all night long and be like oh is that it and then sometimes <laughs> sometimes you put something up that feels you know really off the cuff and you know spontaneous yeah. and you haven't put that much time into it at all and that can just fly. So I wondered what kind of patterns you've noticed in terms of what content is really resonating with followers. Um, I think, um, you know, just to share what has been popular. For example, we did a croissant judging panel video recently, which went over 126,000 views very quickly, um, which is amazing. Um, and on TikTok, we've got um, the That's Not My Name, Spinney's Edition uh, trend that we did. But that was so popular. People were engaging with that a lot, you know, saving that, sharing it. But also people are using, uh, you know, the prime trend on um uh, TikTok, they're constantly asking us when we've got these products in store. So like you say, there's a certain level of information sharing that seems to resonate a lot with our with our customers, which is great. So it's not just about fun or trends. It's about trying to figure out how we still present valuable information via trends. So trends are almost the vehicle, not the actual driver of the, you know, the, the social platform. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess I'm asking you now with your you know, digital editor hat on for any advice for anyone out there who wants to build their social media, either per- mm-hmm. personally, but also professionally. What do you think um, people need to be aware of? Yeah. Um, so if your aim is to have, you know, several bits of trending content, it's so important to find your niche and then create the content around it. Um, I think it's important to remember that it's not that everything that you do will go viral. So don't be disappointed if it doesn't. But if you continue to create content around whatever your niche is, you will definitely in the long run see more interest, higher engagement and a better quality of followers that will come to your page. But it's so important that no matter what you're trying to do, have fun, be authentic, be candid, because when you try and just jump on a trend and force it, it's going to show and your followers will pick up on that Mm -hmm. and that will definitely turn them off. 
Um, and I guess my final bit of advice is to be consistent, to keep the engagement numbers high. So it doesn't matter how many followers you have. It's not about having millions and millions. It's about the quality of engagement. So keep those thoughts in mind every time you try and work on your social platforms. Well, I have to say, I think you guys are doing a fantastic job. Um, so thank you for you. all the hard work that goes on behind the scenes. I'm sure you've got a content calendar absolutely packed for the weekend ahead. Um, we so do. I'll, I'll, I'll let you get back to the office. Vivian uh, Devater, thank you so, so much. And wishing you a lovely weekend ahead. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for being with us on this episode of Farmer's Kitchen. You can tune in live every single Friday afternoon between 2 and 5 on Dubai Eye 103.8.